Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they departed from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up to God, and Yahweh called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. And now, if you will indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession from among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Lo, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and they shall wash their garments, and they shall be ready for the third day. For the third day Yahweh will come down before the eyes of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And you shall set bounds to the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves not to go up to the mount or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount to the people, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near a woman. And it came to pass on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of a trumpet exceedingly exceeding loud. And all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai, the whole of it, smoked, because Yahweh descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended as the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet waxed louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. And Yahweh came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mount. And Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to gaze, and many of them perish. And the priests also who come near to Yahweh shall sanctify themselves, lest Yahweh break forth upon them. And Moses said to Yahweh, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you charged us, saying, Set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. And Yahweh said to him, Go, go down, and you shall come up, you and Aaron with you. And the priests and the people shall not break through to come up to Yahweh, lest he break forth upon them. And Moses went down to the people and said it to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would guide us and direct us in your word, that your spirit would help us 
We give you thanks for your word, for the instruction that you give to us, for the announcement of Christ's victory over sin and death, and for the lives that you have called us to live in light of that grand and glorious truth. Help us now to these ends, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last fall during our family trip out west, one of the stops that we made was at the Grand Canyon. And while I've heard of it jokingly referred to as just a big hole in the ground, nothing could be further from the truth. It truly is a Grand Canyon. And what was initially planned to be a day spending a few hours touring the park and looking at various points of the canyon turned into trying to visit every location along the south rim and even staying for sunset. Now, the, the panorama views, the panoramic views are simply spectacular. And you can take in the view from one point, you know, move a few a hundred feet in one direction, and then realize that you're seeing something new, something different. At the Grand Canyon, there are guided hikes down into the canyon itself, as well as mule rides. And while we didn't take advantage of those on this trip, that would be quite an experience as well, you know, getting a closer look at the canyon walls and seeing the canyon from the bottom as opposed to the top. Well, th- this morning, we're not going to hike or take a mule ride through the text, but are pretty much going to stay at the rim, if you will. We're, we're going to engage in a panoramic view of the text, which I trust will help us when hopefully we examine the rest of the chapter in more detail next week. The bigger picture themes that are found present, uh, that are found, present us with some significant theology and even patterns for not only understanding Scripture, but also for the experience for the church in this world that's instructive for our faith. So the chapter begins recounting the arrival of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai and that they encamped in front of the mountain. The mention of the mountain of God was made back in chapter 18, but here the text clearly relates Israelite, the Israelites' movement from Rephidim to the mountain. And then Israel stays here for a while. In fact, Israel will be here for about 10 to 11 months. And think about this. 59 chapters of the Bible from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are set at Sinai. So over one-sixth of the narrative of Genesis to Kings takes place here. Now maybe one-sixth or uh, 17% doesn't sound like that much, but it is when you think about a 10 to 11th month period receiving this much attention in comparison to, say, a few thousand years of the Genesis to Kings time period. What takes place at Sinai, the the level of interest in such a short period of time is unique in the Old Testament. You know, before this past week, I'd never really thought about that before. Maybe you have, but I hadn't. And, And it certainly gives one pause and even makes me wonder, well, how familiar am I really, am I really with what's going on here? And if it receives this much time and attention, then it's probably pretty important. And of course it is, and arguably Yahweh's teaching Moses and Israel how to worship and structure society, slightly important things to be acquainted with, and what life looks like in covenant with the triune God. 
Still more, all of this points forward to Jesus. But in the coming weeks, as we study the Ten Commandments, the details of the laws in chapters 21 to 23, and even later, and all that's involved with the tabernacle, hopefully we can approach them with a bit more perspective and, and not think of them as just being passages we readily skip over because they're challenging to understand. The amount of concentrated time and attention that the Holy Spirit saw fit to give to this period in Israel's life and to be permanently recorded in God's Word should indicate to us that what, here, that, that what is here has some significance. Well, as we're standing at the rim of Exodus 19, let's get into a helicopter and gain some elevation and consider the sequence of events that we find in the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel. So yes, we're we're now traveling by helicopter to Matthew's Gospel. Now some of these themes we've considered in the past, but there's more for us to consider in light of where we've been and where we're headed in Exodus. In Matthew's Gospel, there's a distinct theme of fulfillment, and Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of Israel's story. What happens in Matthew chapter 2? even as we noted in relation to Epiphany three weeks ago. Well, Jesus goes through an exodus from Israel become Egypt and from Herod become Pharaoh. And then he also comes out of Egypt itself when he eventually returns to to Israel after those seeking his life have died. In Matthew chapter 3, what is recorded? Jesus' baptism, which mirrors Israel passing through the Red Sea when they were baptized even as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 10. What's next, in that, what's next that we find in Matthew 4? Well, Jesus in the wilderness, suffering hunger and thirst. But what else is his experience? Well, he meets an enemy, doesn't he? He certainly does. And so Satan is like Amalek attacking Israel, even as we studied in Exodus 17. What happens to Jesus next? The angels come and minister to him in the wilderness. Well, similarly, Jethro came and ministered to Moses and Israel, as we studied in chapter 18. Where have we arrived in our text today? Well, at Mount Sinai. And what's going to happen? The law is going to be given. How does Matthew chapter 5 begin? Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And then what did he do? Well, he taught his disciples about the law and what it, uh, what it means to be faithful and obedient in his kingdom. So Jesus is on a mountain and teaches about the law. See, these, these things aren't accidental. Uh, and this even coincides with the fulfillment of the, the text that was read from uh, Deuteronomy 18 just a little bit ago. You know, Jesus is this new Moses. Also, we've noted in the past few weeks how Moses uh, goes first and that Israel follows in their experience, and that continues to be true. What does Moses do? Well, he leaves Egypt, and where does he end up? In Midian. And what happens there? Well, he fights some shepherds that were driving away Jethro's seven daughters, who were shepherdesses. Um, They were attacking these brides, if you will. Then Moses meets Jethro, and then gets married to Zipporah. And then what major thing happens next? Well, then he meets Yahweh on the mountain at the burning bush. Well, Israel's sequence is similar, isn't it? They leave Egypt, are involved in a battle with Amalek, meet Jethro, and then meet Yahweh on the mountain. And there's fire and thunder, etc. Again, Moses goes first, and then Israel follows. And these sequences are intentional. 
See, when we realize this and see it, then it makes even more sense when we see a familiar, a, a similar pattern in Matthew's gospel with Jesus. What's more, if you think about what happens to Jesus, and it's a broad and sweeping thing, well, then you also see the experience of the early church in the book of Acts mirroring that of Christ. What happens to Jesus then happens to the church. There's persecution by religious and political leaders. There are arrests, trials, deaths, even resurrections, real and symbolic, preaching and miracles, and so forth. And we see these patterns in Scripture, and that can also help us look at our present circumstances and perhaps see where we might be in a particular sequence and what we can expect and what might be the the most appropriate use of our time and energy. Okay, so for a moment, let's, let's fly the helicopter back to Exodus and let's jump back to Exodus 17 and 18. What was the pattern that we noted about, uh, that we noted last week in relation to moving from chapter 17 into 18? That there are two kinds of Gentiles. Those who bless the sons of Abraham, uh, Jethro, the Midianite, the Kenite, and those who curse the sons of Abraham, uh, such as the Amalekites who come and attack. But the test of the Amalekite comes first. And how did Israel pass that test? Primarily through Moses' intercession, by lifting up his staff, as helped by Aaron and Hur. In other words, through prayer. But Israel passed this Amalekite test, and so then what did they receive as a result? Well, the blessings brought by Jethro the Kenite, who helped them further organize as a people. As one theologian puts it, if the church does not maintain the holy war through prayer, liturgical warfare, she will not have good teaching and a stable government and witness. The other night I was having a conversation with someone who has some sincere concerns about what's going on in our country and about what might happen later this year. And she shared some of her family's history, which entailed fleeing from communism, first from the Soviet Union and then Poland and then East Germany. And she articulated the need for people to be warned and prepared for what might be coming since what she presently observes is reminiscent of what her family experienced. Now, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen later this year any more than we can know for certain what's going to happen later today. But something of which we can be certain is that whatever steps may need to be taken, what we are about right now, as we are gathered together as God's people, engaged in liturgical warfare, is fundamental and crucial to any of our other efforts. And I know you know that because it's been said once if it's been said once, it's probably been said hundreds of times, if not more, from the pulpit, uh, from this pulpit for the last 16 plus years. So why say it again? Well, because if another Amal- Amalekite test or an Amalek test is coming, then we can't flinch at this point. Maybe the whole COVID thing three years ago was such a test, but inevitably there will be more. And so we, we lean all the more into be committed to the Lord's Day service and all that it entails in singing and chanting the psalms, the war songs of Jesus our King, the Prince of Peace, and engaging in this martial exercise week after week because the Lord uses it to defeat Amalekites and to train us in the life of the kingdom that has come. All right, so we're still pretty high up in the helicopter. But let's lower it a bit and come down closer to Sinai and look for some patterns and sequences in chapter 19. Now, as we heard a bit ago, Israel encamped in front of or before the mountain. 
in Scripture, what are mountains? Well, they're places of worship. Garden of Eden, the sanctuary, was on a mountain. Altars are many mountains where worship takes place. And in the New Testament, when a mountain is not readily available, where does worship, where does worship happen? Where does it take place? In an upper room. And as the details of chapter 19 bear out, Sinai is a place for worship, for covenants to be made, for covenants to be renewed, and so forth. Now, given what we know about the arrangement of the garden sanctuary of Eden, as well as the tabernacle and temple, and the direction in which you approach God, it seems to be a pretty safe bet that Israel encamping in front of the mountain meant that they were arranged to the east of the mountain. So here's Israel facing the mountain, the place of worship, and the tabernacle worship that's later established is a recapitulation of their Exodus experience. You know, think of this... Let's think this through. How did Israel get to Sinai? And you'll say, they walked. Yes, I know. I know they walked. Uh, but they left Egypt, right? And what significant event marked their departure? The Passover, which included a sacrifice and a display of blood. What's the first thing Israel encounters at the tabernacle? The altar where the animal representing the worshiper is sacrificed. What's the next signpost of Israel's redemption? Well, the crossing of the Red Sea. What comes after the altar? The labor of cleansing, which is to the east, uh, sorry, which is to the west of the altar. The labor was used to cleanse sacrifices, but also pictured the Red Sea. Then what's next? Well, the holy place, which was raised above ground level, and then the most holy place, which was higher still. So it functioned like a mountain, a symbolic mountain, and the holy place and most holy place even picture Sinai itself. The Holy of Holies, where the ark would be located, the mercy seat, the throne of God, was that visible to the worshiper looking in? No, there was a veil in the way. What do we read about in verses 9 and 16 of our text this morning? What is the manner in which Yahweh appears? In a thick cloud, which means he can't be seen. Even in verse 12, what is Moses ordered to do? To set boundaries so that the people could only get so close. Well, that's also reflected in the tabernacle layout with the people only able to get as far as the altar. But then the priest could get closer and then only the high priest closer still once a year. But every time the Israelites went to worship at the tabernacle, they were presented with their redemption from Egypt. They're passing through the Red Sea and their subsequent arrival at Sinai, the mountain of God. Or from another angle, the tabernacle is a portable Sinai. And then when the temple is built, which is similarly laid out, but permanently placed, nevertheless, the most prominent act of redemption of God's people is still remembered and reenacted. Well, that pattern for worship, remembering the works of God and particularly the work of rescue from slavery and bondage and ascending the mountain and even communing with God and so forth is the pattern which we also follow, isn't it? It certainly is. And so through our own liturgical life, we're similarly recounting our redemption, our deliverance from enslavement to sin and the bondage of death, and we confess what Christ has singularly done and worship accordingly. But we aren't limited in the same way as was Israel. We don't stay at the foot of the mountain, but rather ascend all the way up the mountain, even unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 12. Well, how is that possible? Well, because the veil has been torn. 
and the access has been granted. The thick cloud is no longer barring the way because of what Christ accomplished through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, you may have noticed in the reading how much it seems that Moses goes up and down uh, the mountain, uh, and sometimes it almost seems humorous. It seems like he's just arrived, he's been told to go back down again, and so forth. And, and it seems that, if, if my count is correct, there's, he's going up and down three times in chapter 19 alone, and then uh, apparently seven times over the total course of the time at Sinai. And he's clearly betrayed as the mediator between, between God and Israel. Of course, pointing forward to Christ who descends and ascends, who is the mediator between God and men once and for all. So we have some patterns for all of that here in various ways in Exodus 19 and the chapters that follow. But what else is there for us to observe from, from Sinai? What, are, what other theological foundations can we lay? Well, in verse 6, Yahweh instructs Moses to tell the people that they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Interestingly enough, this is the first time in the Bible that holy is used to refer to people and the first instance of Israel as a nation in Exodus with the only other reference to a nation thus far being back in chapter 9 and verse 24 in referring to Egypt. So Israel is officially becoming a nation at Sinai But the idea of the kingdom of priests, well, that has both kingly and priestly connotations to it, doesn't it? Where is that kind of imagery found in the Bible before Israel's arrival at Sinai? Well, you might uh, think of Melchizedek, the priest king, and you'd uh, you'd be right for making that connection. But even more fundamentally, we encounter priestly and kingly imagery with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. The kingly imagery is obvious, uh, right? The the dominion mandate in Genesis 1. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's the kingly imagery. Where does the priestly imagery come in? On chapter 2, when we read that Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve and to guard it, or to keep it. Serve and guard. Your English translations will read, work and keep, giving you the impression that Adam is a horticulturist, which is true to a point. But serving and guarding are closer to what the text is conveying. Why is that significant? Well, again, where was Adam placed? In the Garden of Eden. Which was what? The sanctuary, the place of worship. And so he's given these priestly duties. If we fast forward to Numbers chapter 3, what do we read? And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they serve at the tabernacle. Keep guard, guard, and Serve. They're the same two verbs used of Adam in the garden, and now they're used of the Levites, the priestly tribe. Remember the the sanctuary, uh, the tabernacle is laid out and has all this Edenic garden imagery about it. So the Levites perform priestly duties that echo all the way back to Adam. But even before the tribe of Levi is set apart for this, 
All of Israel at Sinai hearkens back to Adam's initial calling as a king and as a priest. And now Yahweh is setting apart Israel as a nation for this calling, placing this identity upon them. And they are priests, and as they rightly worship and intercede upon behalf of the world, and they are kings as they govern their lives and society in accord with God's law, according to his prescription for what a society, what a nation should look like. And the nations will be attracted to this and will come to Israel for wisdom, even as we see taking place in Israel's golden age under Solomon. Of course, it could be that when you hear the language of Exodus 19.6, that your mind immediately jumps to 1 Peter 2.9 where the apostle writing to the churches in Asia Minor tells them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what's Peter doing but quoting from Exodus 19 and applying it to the church? He's saying that what was once said of Israel is now true of the church. If the churches in the first century had this identity, then that also means that we have this identity, which means that as priests we can draw near, that we have gained proximity to the presence of God through Christ. And as we and we we have this as a as the community of believers, uh, the emphasis is upon the corporate nature of this reality, not so much on the individual aspect. Peter also refers to our royal status, our kingly status, and of course we have that. Because we are in Christ and we by faith are with Jesus who is ruling and reigning over all things in heaven and earth. And so we rule and reign with him, which is expressed in obedience to his commands and self-rule and self-control first. And then in living according to the wisdom of his word for all areas of our lives as we seek to rule and subdue the earth. And whereas Israel was to be a light to the nations and would draw the peoples to her. The church is also a light to the nations, but then we've also been commissioned. We've been sent out to disciple the nations, to baptize them and to teach them to obey the commands of Jesus, which basically means we're making them priests and kings as well. And I hope this this more uh, full-orbed view of our calling um, helps us to move away from the entirely too narrow view that evangelism and missionary work um, that sometimes expressed as just merely reaching people or people groups um, because uh, we, and we do this because we want Jesus to come back sooner. Well, that's not quite right. Um, you know, what does Paul teach in 1 Corinthians 15, 25? That Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. See, that's still taking place. Jesus is still putting his enemies under his feet. And that's going to take some time. And is, how is Jesus doing that now? Well, through the ministry of the church. Even as we are set apart and empowered to do so by the Holy Spirit, by the Word and Sacraments, seeking to be faithful in obedience to the covenant with Jesus, our Savior and King. Well, one final perspective from Sinai and Exodus 19 this morning is found when we consider the language and imagery of Yahweh's descent upon uh, the top of Mount Sinai. Now, how, how is it described? Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. 
So there's, there's cloud and fire on the mountain. There's fire at the top of the mountain sanctuary. Of course, the cloud and fire uh, are a picture of God's presence, even the Holy Spirit, as we've noted in the pillar of cloud and fire that's been leading the sons of Israel. At the de- dedication of the tabernacle, the fire and cloud significantly appear, denoting Yahweh's presence, that he's taking up residence, as it were, in the tabernacle. We say that later with the temple as well. But then where and when is Israel going to see fire on the mountain and smoke rising up again? Every time they come to the tabernacle for worship and they behold the fire and the smoke on the altar, the mini mountain, that is the reminder, the rehearsing of God's saving work of their redemption and of their calling as God's special covenant people. And in the scriptures, there are plenty of other occasions when fire falls, when it comes down, notably Elijah on Mount Carmel and his showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. But even more, and perhaps you can guess, in Acts chapter 2, it begins this way. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and sat on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the the apostles, they're gathered in one place. Uh, They're in a house, likely in the upper room. And there's a mighty rushing wind, the wind or breath, Holy Spirit imagery. And then there's fire, also Holy Spirit imagery. And it sits upon them. It settles upon them. Uh, The Holy Spirit makes his abode with them. What does that mean? That they're holy and the Spirit can dwell in them. And also that they're acceptable sacrifices, as it were, even living sacrifices. So as the fire came down upon Mount Sinai, so the fire has come down to Pentecost and the church has become the mountain after a fashion. Now, maybe that sounds weird, but that's part of the imagery, especially when we consider what Peter writes in his first letter, Uh, just a few verses before the ones we noted earlier. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, that's tabernacle and temple imagery, but being used in reference to the church. And we have a priestly calling that involves spiritual sacrifices. And as we read elsewhere in the New Testament, those, those sacrifices aren't disembodied. So when you, when you hear spiritual sacrifices, don't just think, oh, this is up in the thoughts somewhere. Um, no, no, no. What does that involve? It involves worship and tithing and doing good and sharing even our whole selves and all that we do, in the renewing of our minds and seeking to conform our life to the will of God as given in His Word. And so think about this imagery. There's there's fire on the mountain, and, and you're a part of that mountain, and you have that fire, even the Holy Spirit. And what is the future of that mountain? Well, even in the uncertainty that we might feel in, be feeling in another election year and all that might be brewing in relation to uh, the, the Texas border or 
any other number of things going on around the world and in our lives, you know, what, what can we be sure of and what promises can we rest? Well, in consideration of that, let's, let's go to Daniel chapter 2, where we read about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue that he sees. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And this statue represents the great empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then Rome with the Herods of Israel's day. And what happens to the statue? Daniel relates to Nebuchadnezzar. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then later, Daniel also tells Nebuchadnezzar, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Jesus is that stone that destroyed the statue. It's an altar stone. It's an uncut stone. Um... No human hands have made it. So it's a natural stone. What does that mean? That It means that God made it. And that altar stone becoming a mountain is filling the whole earth. And it's a kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom. And it will undermine and destroy any competing empires and kingdoms. And it will do so by establishing true worship of Jesus, the King of Kings. The growth of this mountain and kingdom is a gradual process. It takes time. But we can be assured that it is indeed taking place, even as the history of the last 2,000 years indicates. And still more, we can be encouraged that what we are about this day, even this moment, is not in vain, but is the very act, the very service which we render unto the Lord, even the sacrifice of praise, as we remember and partake of the sacrifice of Christ and are renewed in covenant with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus on the mountain told the disciples, you, speaking to the disciples who prefigure the church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And he basically says, don't cover up the light. But let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Behold the, this, this, this panoramic view of the mountain. Try to take it all in and even glory in it. But then go forth as the light, as the fire of Christ's rule and reign in all things and over all things to the filling of the earth. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again... I thank you for the way in which your word is written and how you would impress your word upon us through these 
patterns and types that we see. We thank you that Christ has gone before us. And even as he suffered death, yes, yet he was also resurrected. And so as we follow Christ our Savior, and we also suffer deaths in various ways and even death itself, we thank you that we can be sure of the life that is to come, the life that is on the other side of death, for he has conquered death once and for all. Grant us continued strength and hope and encouragement and grant us greater faithfulness to indeed be the light to the world. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.